It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Another day, another veto. We are recording the podcast on Thursday morning. Just got a video notice from Governor Roy Cooper saying that he has vetoed Senate Bill 747 also known as the Jumbo Jet Bill of Election Suppression by Democrats. It's called the Election Integrity Bill by Republicans. But we are headed for another veto override vote, we assume, that second week in September. That is Governor Cooper's 15th veto of this session. So, racking them up. If the votes stay where they were last week when the bill passed, I assume this bill is headed for an override vote. Of course, there were a few absences last week, but we have to assume that the numbers are there and we're headed for another messaging war over the next couple weeks as we head into that September 11th session, which we're supposed to be voting on the budget that week, but I'm sure they'll make time for this veto override. I took a look at Governor Cooper's press release just because the NCLEG website updates when the veto is delivered to the clerk's office in whichever chamber passed the bill first. So it's a Senate bill that would be in the Senate chamber. And it wasn't yet up on the NCLEG website, which means the special messenger has not brought it over yet. And I looked and I said, oh, there might be another bill there that he would veto. So took me to Governor Cooper's site, and it said to veto. So I'm not sure if he has already vetoed or if he's going to do that later today or tomorrow. Mm. And then look for that hand delivery. (laughs) That's right. And for those of you who are curious about how these bills are delivered, they literally are hand delivered by a special messenger. The House has a special messenger, the Senate has a special messenger, and the governor's office has a special messenger. Last week on Wednesday, when the House and Senate had to keep waiting on each other to do things, we were watching this special messenger go back and forth. Yeah. We need like special messenger webcam, you know? I don't know. It's just watching old people walk. (laughs) Had a little political drama this week. Democrat Representative Terrence Everett. He represents Wake Forest up in northeastern Wake County. He wrote a letter to Wake County District Attorney Lauren Freeman asking her to open up an investigation into Speaker Tim Moore. This goes back to the allegations made against the Speaker earlier in the year. He's saying that the relationship that Speaker Moore had with a state employee, there was something criminal there. But the Wake County District Attorney disagreed. She said I'm not going to pursue an investigation in this. I don't see any criminal conduct here. By statute, the Wake County District Attorney is in charge of investigating filing charges against any legislator in the General Assembly who there are allegations about. It is one of the unique responsibilities of being a Wake County District Attorney. But this feels to me as if Really, the attempt was to keep this in the news, this kind of lascivious news story that dropped months ago. The intent is to just keep it in the public discussion. And if that is the goal of Representative Everett, he succeeded. 
On Wednesday, we had another entrance into the lieutenant governor race. Rockingham County attorney Seth Woodall announced that not only is he running for lieutenant governor as a Republican, but he has put in $1 million of his own money to help fund this effort. By the way, a million dollars in the LG race is a significant amount of money. By the way, this is the second Rockingham County resident who has declared for this race. Rockingham County Sheriff Sam Page, he announced months ago that he is running for lieutenant governor. But again, a crowded, crowded race in this GOP primary. Right now, there are seven candidates. Representative Jeffrey Elmore, a big chair in the House. Hal Weatherman, he's the former advisor to Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, and he worked for Congressman Madison Cawthorn. Peter Boykin, I believe he's runs the organization Gays for Trump. And then, of course, we mentioned Sam Page. Alan Mashburn, I believe he's a minister somewhere out in the Sand Hills area. And then we've talked about former state senator Deanna Ballard. On the Democratic side, there's only two candidates running. Senator Rachel Hunt and former Senator Ben Clark. Additionally, on Wednesday morning, there was a ceremony where both legislators and Governor Cooper were at to unveil the Freedom Park, and it sits in between the governor's mansion and the legislature. It is a park dedicated to the historical struggle and achievement of black North Carolinians. It was great to see the bipartisan support in the opening of this park. As we've been recording, Justice Michael Morgan tweeted that he is stepping down from the Supreme Court and departing during the week of September 4th, which is Labor Day. This is pretty big news because he's one of two Democrats on the state Supreme Court and also he is considering running for governor. This is a curious announcement. It seems to me that he is ready to declare for governor. Could be wrong. Have got no information or at least inside information about this. What I know is pretty much what you know if you're following it in the media. But he would have some ethical dilemmas if he was to run for governor as a Supreme Court justice, because as you know, when judicial candidates run for office, they can't take public positions on policy matters. So this will allow him, if he is leaving to run for governor, he can then start talking about issues that are important to his campaign. Now, that is yet to be seen. What we do know is that Governor Cooper will be replacing Justice Morgan on the Supreme Court. That means a Democrat will be coming on to the court to replace him. So the numbers are not going to change. It's still going to be a 5-2 Republican Supreme Court. This is huge news, and we'll just see how it develops over the next couple days. Probably in the next week, we'll learn more. So with so much news being driven in NC Poll World around the 2024 elections, our friends over at the John Locke Foundation sent over a poll this morning. It's getting released later today, Thursday afternoon, around not only 2024 politics, but also some policy questions that are being bantered around the General Assembly. Not surprisingly, Trump leads that 2024 ballot for Republicans. I think pretty much every poll has him up 40 to 50 points on other candidates. 
29% of voters chose Trump and 18% said they would prefer another Republican candidate. And only 18% of voters prefer Joe Biden and 20% of Democratic voters would prefer a non-Biden Democratic option. On the policy side, we got some numbers indicating support for casinos, overwhelming support for casinos, but with a catch, Sky. 76% of voters want the decision on legalizing casinos to appear on a statewide referendum. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> no. I don't even know if we have a mechanism for that. Like, we don't really, unless you're amending the Constitution, we, we really don't, we're not a referendum state like California where we actually vote on, you know, state law. Seem to be bipartisan support among voters out there who say they are very concerned about inflation. 95% of those polled say that they have seen their food costs go up, their energy costs go up. Uh, I imagine that that is going to be the message that you hear in 2024 as candidates are asking for your vote. Of course, all this polling, at least uh, around the presidential numbers, was taken prior to last night's debate. Did you watch the debate last night? I didn't, did you? I, I did not watch the 9 debate. 9 p.m. is too late for me. Wait. It's going to be a no for me, dog. Yeah, yeah. We haven't mentioned any unsubstantiated rumors in a while. A constant rumor we get. And we just want to just put it out there because it is in the ether, as you like to say. And that is that Speaker Tim Moore is considering stepping down from his House seat in December. Again, don't know that it, it has not been substantiated by Speaker Moore or his staff. Yeah. But we have heard it a lot. Yes. Across the political aisles. So this week, you sat down with Representative Cecil Brockman, who we've been trying to get on the podcast for a while. And I'm sad that I missed it, but look forward to hearing this interview. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Cecil Brockman. Tell us a little bit about your district. Where is your district and what makes your district special? Well, I'm from High Point, North Carolina in Gifford County. We're kind of the stepchild of uh, <laughs> Gifford County. Greensboro is kind of the, the bigger city that everybody kind of knows. Um, but we're the furniture capital of the world. Um, and so, you know, everybody comes there to buy furniture. Uh, every two years, uh, we produce about $6.5 billion, which is two Super Bowls uh, every two years. I always try to remind people that, and I always try to remind uh, Speaker Moore every time I'm trying to request appropriations for the city of High Point. Um, and so, you know, I feel it's like a very unique uh, city um, that, you know, offers, you know, quite a bit of uh, you know, the city feel and also kind of a country feel as well. Not too big, not too small. Um, and I, I love it. Born and raised. Talk to us about you growing up in High Point. What was that like? Uh, let's see. I lost my dad when I was four years old. And so, uh, you know, I became really close to my grandparents, um, who my granddad was a preacher. And so I was raised in the church. Um, and so uh, that really kind of impacted the person who I am now. I ran track. I played basketball. I, I 
played Pop Warner football. My uncle actually uh, owned a Pop Warner football team. And so I, I was, I got to be the quarterback. I always tell people. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, I really enjoyed that. My favorite player growing up was Dan Marino. So I used to always act like I could throw the football like Dan. Um, uh-huh. And everybody used to say, just throw it normal. <laughs> so, um, it, it was actually a great experience. You know, um, I absolutely loved it. I went to Ragsdale High School, um, which, you know, we were bused at coming from Highs Point. It was in Jamestown. Um, and it was an, an amazing experience. I loved the my teachers I love my friends a lot of the friends who I grew up with I'm still friends with today um and you know I feel like uh you know everybody got along really well we still kind of hang out and talk to each other now so it's really cool so your grandparents played a role was it a situation where being raised by a single mom raised by a single mom my mom my mom actually later got married uh to my stepfather they're now divorced, but my stepfather, um, he was great as well. You know, I've got nothing bad to say about him. He's a, a great person. Um, but unfortunately, their marriage didn't work out. Um, but, you know, that's that's kind of how it goes. But he's a great person, um, yeah. and I still talk to him today. So you went to Ragsdale, and then you later go on to UNC Charlotte? Yeah, UNC Charlotte and Charlotte. You know, I love Charlotte. You know, uh-huh. I, I used to think that I was going to, you know, live there. Um, but, you know you know, politics called, uh-huh, <laughs> but, uh-huh. uh, no, UNC Charlotte was great. I majored in, uh, politics, political science, you know, um, I, I wanted to be a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> Were you Bob, uh, young Bob Rucho at the time or what? Well, I, it's an amazing story because, uh, I dated a girl, um, in high school who her dad was the ER doctor, uh, at, you know, High Point Regional Hospital. And so I just thought I gotta be something, you know, that makes money uh, to impress her and her Uh father, you know? And then after my, uh, you know, freshman year, when we weren't together anymore in college, um, I was thinking in chemistry too, I'm like, man, this is really tough. And I didn't uh, actually date her anymore. So I was like, why am I doing this? This is, I got a C in chemistry. I'm, I should do something a little bit easier that I want to do. Um, and so I took a political science class and that was really easy for me. And so that's kind of it after that. Now, were you the kind of kid growing up in High Point where you were following politics and that's what propelled you to take that on in, in college? What What prompted this? Where did this come from? I had a uh, pastor who was very political, okay. uh, and so every time in church, he would also always talk about politics, and that always kind of, you know, interested me a little bit, but I would I would always know what was going on politically just because, just from going to church, you know, and, uh, you know, just following CNN or just, you know, Fox News or MSNBC, just watching those channels, uh, you know, it, it was very easy for me, I can say, uh-huh. and so, like, none of the classes that I ever took in college were hard or tough you know they were always very interesting for me and so it kind of just seemed like an easy transition for me leaving trying to be a dentist you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I've known you for close to two decades and I know you have been on all sides of the political world did you see yourself being an elected office at one point or did because I know before you started your career on the campaign side I'd never at least thought I would run for office this young I always thought this would be something that I would do much later in life but you know the the opportunity called actually you know representative Marcus Brandon who I you know I worked for Mm -hmm. you um, were his legislative assistant legislative assistant uh, he was running for Congress um, and right and so that Mel Watt crazy district um, and so when he decided to run for Congress, he said, you know, you should run for, you know, the House seat. And, and what year is this, by the way? This is 2014. 
And this is the district he ran in a district that I grew up in. I was born and raised in that all my whole family is in that district. And you're in L.A. for I'm that LA, district. I'm yeah. L.A. for that district, you know, his campaign manager um, and the, the mayor of High Point at the time. You know, she called and she said, Cecil, you really need to run for this seat. And I had other folks who were calling me and saying that I should run. And I thought, man, I don't know if there ever will be a time where I've got so much support from people who think I should run for this office. Right. Um, and so uh, literally the last day of filing, because <laughs> uh-huh. I, I was talking myself out of it, honestly, um, I decided to put my name on the ballot and the rest is history. Let's back it up. I want to get to your decision to run and you running for this seat and serving in this seat. But let's go back and you're going to have to help me. Are we going back to 2008 when Representative Marcus Brandon was first elected to the General Assembly? Yeah, that's kind of crazy because I was working for uh, Secretary of State Elaine Marshall at the time. And, uh, you know, we saw Marcus, who was running against another, you know, uh, elected official, uh, Representative Earl Jones at the time. That's right. I forgot about that. He was an incumbent. He was an incumbent. Yeah. Nobody took Marcus seriously. Like uh, even, you know, the Lane Marshall campaign who, you know, uh, we were kind of looking, we were just visiting, you know, at the time and seeing that Marcus was running against, uh, you know, incumbent. And we were just like, there's no way this guy's going to win. You know, Earl Jones, former <laughs> Earl city council, right. uh, NAACP, yes. uh, sit in incorporated. This guy had deep roots deep in roots. the Guilford County community. Right. Yes, most definitely. And nobody thought Marcus had a chance, you know, and he pulled it out, you know, and everybody was like, wow, who is this guy? You know, were you his campaign manager? I was that? not his campaign manager. I was working for Elaine Marshall at the time. But okay. when we, we came to visit High Point, you I know, see. that's when me and Marcus actually met for the first time. Uh, and so Marcus was like, if I win this thing, you know, I'll take you with me to Raleigh. <laughs> and so that's how I became his uh, L.A. That was a huge upset. It was a huge upset. Yeah. And really knocked Jones out of politics, it seems. Has he come back in any way? No, he, he uh, ran again against Marcus in 2010, but Marcus beat him again. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we could spend a whole podcast on former Representative Marcus Brandon. We're not going to do that. He's his own. I mean, that is a whole other yeah. stories to tell about this guy. <laughs> what, yeah, he is a great guy. You still see him walking around the General Assembly. He's lobbying on He's my best friend. charter yeah. school issues. Wonderful man. Yeah. I love him. So you go and you work for him as a legislative assistant slash campaign manager. One of those situations where you, what, you take off when he's running and right. then you come back. Yeah. Right. So you make the decision, he's going to run for Congress. That's 2014? Yes. You win. Yes. So you go from being in the L.A. seat, the legislative assistant seat, to the legislator's office. Talk me through that. Yeah, that was probably um, (laughs) the biggest thing to get used to, you know, (laughs) from people. Because, you know, people treat you different when you're the the legislator. You know, I, I got used to being treated as the legislative assistant. And I, I can say from, from from talking to you, Brian, that, you know, you were always somebody who treated me the same as anybody else. You oh. know, there's some people in the building that, you know, obviously the legislators get treated very differently than anybody else, you know, but uh, there's some people who don't necessarily treat the LAs, you know, just as good as they treat everybody else, or they don't even talk to the LA, you know, they just kind of act like they're, you know, just kind of second class citizens almost. 
Um, and you were always somebody who well, spoke to you. me and, uh, you know, treated me just like I was anybody else. And I really have always appreciated that. Well, um, and so people remember how you treat them. You yeah. know, at the end of the day, they may not remember, you know, what you say to them, but they remember how you make them feel. So you came into office and some of the work that you started working on immediately was in many ways, a continuation of your predecessor, Representative Marcus Brandon, especially on the issue of school choice vouchers. Some call it opportunity scholarships. Others call it charter schools. You have always been a very strong proponent for that, as was Representative Marcus Brandon. Now, at the time, that put both of you in maybe crosshairs, I guess you could say, with other Democrats, because it's not necessarily, or at least at the time, it wasn't in sync with the party. It seems to be cooling off and getting better, but I want you to talk about that. What do you think of that? Yeah, and I got to tell you, when I was Marcus's LA, this was probably one of the biggest issues we disagreed uh, on. Um, but, you know, when, you know, and, and I think Marcus is a brilliant person, he's a genius. Um, and, but when he, you know, he keeps, bringing up just the numbers and the numbers are, you know, 60% of African-American students inside our traditional public schools are, are not proficient and they're not on grade level and they're considered felon. Um, and 80% of our white uh, students are not or are proficient. So when you just look at those numbers, you got to think like, what in the world? And if, if it was reversed, if white students were 60% not proficient, I think we would be, you know, there would be a completely different ball game, and we wouldn't be having the same discussions that we have now. I feel like when I actually talk to normal people, you know, not the politics, <laughs> politicians, people, they, they get it, you know, they get the fact that it's not good for tradition in our traditional public schools for african-american kids every single person you talk to they want to make the best educational decision for their own kid <laughs> regardless of what anybody thinks everybody wants to make that choice for their kid um and when you say no you can't make that choice like who are you to say that you can't who or who am i or who, who is anybody else for that matter to say what you know brian lewis does with their ch child you know everybody gets that you know and i, I think Democrats are making a huge mistake um, if they continue down this road of kind of inter interfering with people's personal choice when it comes to education. Has it gotten better in the Democratic caucus around this issue? Um, no. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. You know. I. I it, it's still. I, I can tell you. I was in a uh, town hall recently where I was shouted down just for saying that charter schools are public schools. You know, which is a fact, which is a fact. <laughs> I ended up having to tell people to just Google it because mm -hmm. it's just one of a, a fact. Um, but I had a school board member actually in Gifford County who stood up and said that charter schools were not public schools. And it's just that, that kind of rhetoric, you know, just makes it really hard to talk to people about it because they, they have this one image in their head of what charter schools are. And some of them don't even believe that it's a public school. And it's very hard to get through that rhetoric, you know, yeah. of just what the facts are, you know. Um, and so I, I like to think that it's gotten better, um, but it, this politics of it is still very hard, I think. So we're having this conversation on... Wednesday, August 16th. By the way, it's 9.30 at night. You just got out of house session. By the way, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, there was a vote today on a charter school override. You voted to override the veto of that charter school bill. One of, I believe, two Democrats, you and Shelley Willingham, it's got to be hard 
to be a Democrat kind of on an island. Of course, you're there with Representative Willingham. It's got to be hard with your colleagues within the Democratic caucus. Mm, Sometimes. I think at least me being there for nine and a half years, I think folks are a little bit more used to it. Um, just because I've been very consistent on what my votes are for charter schools. Unfortunately, there's just so much of a, kind of an antithesis to charter schools that it makes it really hard. Um, and it, it kind of puts me in a position to support charter schools in the way that I do just because of how how people seem to just dislike them so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I try as much as I can to, to try to support uh, schools that are doing the job. I always say this: schools that are actually doing the job of teaching our kids, you know, and I always say, look, a charter school could be shut down in three to four years if it's not doing the job of teaching our kids. But look at our traditional public schools. We've had traditional public schools that have been failing for decades, and most of them are, you know, in black communities that affect African-American kids. And Democrats like to say that we, um, you know, are for the African-American community. And this is the number one issue in our community is education. You know, if you want to you know, get out of poverty, you know, you're going to need education. And we've got schools that have been failing our community for years. And it is not a progressive position to support uh, the status quo. You know, I don't see what is progressive about, about that at all. Um, and so I think the position that I hold is actually progressive. You know, mm-hmm. I, I support, you know, uh, schools that are actually doing the job of teaching our kids. If it's a charter school that's not doing that, then let's shut it down. Um, but we don't want to have that same conversation with the majority, where the majority of our kids go. And I, I think that's appalling. You have an ally in the General Assembly with Representative Trisha Cotham, who was a Democrat. She switched over to the Republican Party, and she was the sponsor, I believe, of the bill that was voted on tonight, the charter school override. Uh, she said it was very difficult for her to work within the Democratic caucus on that issue and other issues that kind of led to her departure. Do you have a comment on that? Do you have a perspective? Yeah, I mean, Trisha um, is a friend of mine. You know, I don't mind saying that. Um, She's somebody who's been very loyal to me. I can tell you this story on why I'm loyal to Trisha. When I was first um, elected, um, 2015, uh, coming into session, uh, we got to pick mentors for, uh, you know, who who we wanted to be our mentor. And the person who I chose to be my mentor actually rejected me. They said, no, I don't want to actually mentor you. Um, and so Trisha, we got to unpack that in a minute. But go ahead. Continue with the story. <laughs> but Trisha said, yeah, I'll take you in, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll mentor you. And so Trisha has always been loyal to me. And so, you know, I'm the type of person, if you're loyal to me, I'm loyal to, to you. You know, I understand everything that Trisha has gone through, you know, and I'm a Democrat. I will always be a Democrat. You know, and so um, I probably don't have any comment on the party switch, you know, Um, but, you know, uh, she's my friend and I'll always uh, support my friends. We need to unpack, though, the legislator who said they would not mentor you. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm not going to uh, say that, say who they are just because of they're, you know, somebody who I think people would be very much surprised by. And, you know, they've got a pretty big and long legacy at the General Assembly. Um, and I don't want to do anything to distort that. Um, sure. But, you know, that's those, that's what happened. You know, me as a young 29, 30-year-old person, young African-American male coming into politics, um, needing a mentor, I was rejected. So. Do you know why? Uh, probably Marcus. Okay. <laughs> probably Marcus Brandon. Folks in the party didn't really like Marcus as much, probably because of the, you know, school choice stuff. I assume that's what it was. 
tying it into Trisha, I know you don't want to comment on her departure from the party, but one of her allegations was that it really was feeling like a closed tent party. Yeah, I think the party's got to be very careful about that. You know, we've got to be more open to folks who don't agree with us. You know, uh, I understand exactly what why Trisha feels the way she feels, you know. I always tell people, or recently I've been telling people, you know, you, if you keep telling people uh, that, you know, you're going to go against them and, you know, uh, tries to find somebody to, to run against them and do all these things against somebody, you can't necessarily be surprised when they decide to, you know, do that first against you. And I think that was kind of the position she was put in, you know. The threats are, are real, you know, and I'm not necessarily saying leadership does that, but, you know, it gets around to, I think, special interest groups, you know, and I only tell certain people how I'm going to vote, you know, and so if somebody else finds out, then I know where it comes from. Um, and so that's kind of how it happens, you know. Um, they don't necess- Leadership doesn't necessarily say certain things, but it comes from, it definitely comes from special interest groups who come in and try to, to threaten you. And I'm kind of the opposite. You know, if you come in and you threaten me, then I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah. going to do the opposite yeah. of what you, you want me to do. And so I, I'm very easy. You can come talk to me at any time and you have to convince me. You know, I'm not somebody that I'm just going to vote the way you want me to vote just because you said to vote that way. You've got to convince me. You've got to have facts. Um, and then I'm going to consider it and then I'll vote accordingly. And you're seen as one of those swing votes in the House. And there's a few. There's Michael Ray. There's Shelley Willingham. There's Garland Pierce. Uh, there's you. Being a swing vote can be a lonely place, right? Because it's so easy to just vote with the caucus, whether you're Republican or yeah. Democrat, right? Just tell us how to vote. We'll vote that way. But to truly be a swing vote is hard. Yeah. And I, I could listen. I could be here in Raleigh for 30 years, you know, and vote exactly how the party wants me to vote. And I would get zero done for my district, right. you know, and I, I come from a poor black district. I, you know, I was like I said, I was born and raised in High Point. Uh, and I just don't, you know, I don't think it's fair for the party to tell me, uh, wait until Democrats are in control before you do something for your district. You know, I'm I consider myself a pragmatic, progressive. People like to say I'm a moderate, but I'm, I'm not a moderate. I'm a progressive. Um, I'm the first person to introduce a bill to feed all of our students uh, at our public schools, I, you know, doing universal pre-K, universal health care. You know, I support all of those things. I'm a, pro- a progressive person, but I'm also pragmatic, you know, and we are in a super majority. Uh, and if I want to get anything done, I've got to talk to the folks who are in power. And the folks who are in power right now are uh, the Republicans. And if I want anything done for my district, I've got to talk to them. And I can tell you in the last budget, uh, I got, you know, money for to start the High Point Collaborative, um, which, you know, the it forces or it, it allows for uh, nonprofits in our district to work together to be able to get funds for the district. And 27 nonprofits were able to get money from our uh, state budget. And I don't know any uh, body who can say that they got 27 nonprofits money uh, for their district, you know, and in and, and the super minority. Right. So for me, that's a big deal. And if you talk to any of these nonprofits, you will see how much of a impact that money has been uh, and how much uh, they've been able to help folks in our, my community. So I'm very proud of that. It's got to be something that you go home when you're driving back to High Point and you're thinking about because you want to keep to those progressive beliefs your values that you have, that balance has to be something that you're always thinking about. 
Yeah, it most definitely is. But, you know, uh, it gives me great comfort to, that when I actually do go back home, uh, they tell me, keep up the good work. You know, they, yeah. they realize I do. They, they see the criticism that I get. They, you know, are always like, why are they keep beating up on you? You know, you're just trying to do what's right for the district. And that, that gives me great comfort because, you know, I'm again, I could stay here in Raleigh and I could vote with the party, vote the party line. That would just be so easy. That, mm-hmm. That's the easiest thing I could easiest do. Thing. Easiest thing I could do. Um, but, I you know, I chose not to do that. I chose to actually, you know, work for my district and actually do my best to be able to uh, make a difference. You know, I, I, the folks in High Point, I like to tell people, are different. You know, they're a show me. You know, what have you actually done? And it's not enough, you know, and I think politicians on our side of the aisle probably it's too easy to say, well, Republicans are in power and that's why I'm not able to do anything. That's too easy. You know, I, I, you know, I do the best that I can uh, to try to work um, you know, with the majority uh, when I feel like I can. I'm sticking to my principles. And I think that's at the end of the day, I think that's what most voters want. They want politicians to kind of stop all the bickering and fighting and uh, actually try to work together, you know, and that's what I try to do. Within the community of your colleagues, though, Democratic colleagues, is it is it lonely for you in the General Assembly? I know you have friends there. I know you have folks that even are in the same position as you. Is it lonely? Politics can be lonely. You know, I, I try not to uh, think about it like that because okay. my priority is uh, my district, you know. And so I'm I actually <laughs> a story when I was uh, in D- D.C. and I was actually an intern at the DNC. I talked to uh, someone who said, you don't you don't come to D.C. to make friends. You know, you, that's not what politics is for. Okay. It's not for friends. Um, and so that's kind of always stuck with me. You know, it's like it's not necessarily a place where you're coming and you're trying to, you know, make besties. You know, uh-huh. you, you're coming here to, to do a job and do what's best, you know, for uh, the people who you're elected. Um, and so hmm, I, sometimes I think it gets lonely, but I, I, I think I, I try my best to remember why I'm here, you know, and my mom. Uh, I've got, you know, just a tough mom who, you know, is the reason that I am the way I am. She's <laughs> <laughs> she she always does uh, a good job of reminding me where I come from. It doesn't matter, you know, how big she, I think I am. You know, she always puts me in my place and yeah. reminds me that, you know, she brought me into this world and she will take me out if yeah. I get too big. So, well, let me ask you this. I'm always been curious about this. So tonight, great example. We had veto overrides. You were with the Republicans on the charter school override, but you were certainly not with them on some of the LGBTQ issues. I imagine Republicans, they must see you as a swing vote. They want your vote. They would like to have a bipartisan vote, certainly before the supermajorities, they were courting you on things. You seem to do a great job of saying, yes, I'm going to work with you on this, but hell no on that. That must be hard, too, because when you're dealing with the Republicans, because I'm sure they're always courting you, right? Yeah, I think that I think that's the best part about being a swing voter is that at the end of the day, people are going to have to come talk to you. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. There's some people, you know, in the building where you just know, you know, how they're going to vote. And, you know, it's not even worth your time to go talk to them. But I'm somebody, you know, you're going to have to come talk to me. You know, yeah. you're going to have to make your case. Um, and, you know, if you make a good case, then I'm, I, I might be for you, you know. Um, and I think that, at least for me in, in my district, I think that's a great thing. You know, I'm not somebody who's just going, and I, I rarely tell people I'm going to vote, um, but I'm not just somebody who is just going to vote 
a party line vote just because, you know, the governor says vote that way or leadership votes that way. You know, that's how I'm going to vote. That's not who I am. You know, my mom has always told me to use your own brain. Yeah. <laughs> she said that all the time growing up, you know, when I would, you know, follow in the crowd and do something I wasn't supposed to do. She says, See, so use your own brain yeah. um, and make your decisions. And that's what I do. I use my own brain. You know, I think about these issues very deeply. Um, and I, I vote, you know, when uh, on issues that, you know, I believe in. So. Let's talk about you outside the General Assembly. I see you in Raleigh. We take the time to chat. Talk about your life outside of politics. Uh, I'm an avid uh, Miami Dolphins fan. Yeah, I get that. Dan Mar- <laughs> you're a young Dan Marino. Yeah, yeah right? young Dan Marino. I, I used to keep a Miami Dolphins notebook when I was a kid with all the players in it. Um, and so uh, I love the Dolphins. I follow everything about the Miami Dolphins, the preseason right now. Um, so like I, that, that is like everything to me. And I, I play tennis, you know, okay. to, to get away from everything. Um, I love playing tennis. Um, and so those are kind of my two big things is just, you know, going outside and uh, playing some tennis, hitting the ball around sometimes um, or, you know, following the Dolphins. I also watch, you know, the NBA sometimes, college basketball. You know, I'm a big Wake fan, you uh-huh. know, Tim Duncan, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's what I do. You're a young man, uh, <laughs> young in your public service. Um, what's next for you? Or is this, do you, you said earlier in the conversation you could see yourself here 30 years if you voted the party line yeah are you planning on being here 30 years or if i can you know everything that keeps what in in my mind you know if i can keep doing what i'm doing for my district you know and keep bringing back uh the resources for my district you know um i don't know anybody else who's going to take the heat that i take and uh you know still get as much done for my district as i do you know so as long as i can do that i i literally have no People always ask me this, what my ambition is, you know, running for Congress or anything else. And I literally have no ambition to do that. Really? <laughs> I don't. I really don't. I, uh, I, I, I want to do, I want to see my community get better. Like that's, yeah. that's my ambition. You know, I, again, I was born and raised in the district and, uh, you know, I look around my community and I, I just want to see it better than what it was when I was growing up. And so that's, that's my ambition. I don't, I have no ambition to run for any higher office, you know, um, I just want my community to, to be better off uh, than what I left it, you know, so. That would be a good legacy. Yeah. Well, let me close with this. Um, You know, our politics right now are so divided. Yeah. If you had a magic wand and you could fix something in our politics, you could just make it better, what would it be? I think I might get rid of political parties. Yeah. Yeah. Just, they're just, they're just so toxic. You know, it matters uh, who says something. It matters what policies come from a political party. You know, Mm -hmm. we can't just, you know, you know, the best political policy can't just, you know, just be, you know, good policy. It it matters where it comes from. People have to, you know, wait and see uh, who says something um, or does something. If somebody does something bad, you know, and it's a person on your side, then you don't care as much. But if it's a Republican or, you know, somebody on the other side, then suddenly you care a lot. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's so tribal. And, you know, like you said, social media, if you just look on social media, you know, it's just completely toxic. Um, and that's really sad, you know, um, I, I would just completely wipe out, uh, political parties. I think George Washington was right when he said we, we shouldn't have political parties. Mm-hmm. So someone who came out of the campaign side, is this something that you came to as you served in elected office or have you kind of always felt that way? 
no, serving an elective office has definitely changed my mind about all this stuff. You know, um, when I think people who don't know you, you know, who have never, ever met you one day in your, their life, and then they suddenly have a very strong opinion about you, you know, about, you, you know, and never met you one once before. And they don't even know why you, you support a certain issue um, or support a, a certain policy. And they just hate you, you know, yeah. and it's just it's very sad. You know, again, it's just a, a huge toxic environment. It's one of the reasons why it's hard for Republicans and Democrats to work together. It's hard, you know just trying to be up here and just trying again trying me trying to do something that I think is best for my district people will just attack me not even knowing me one day in their life um and I, it's really sad you know mm-hmm. so and you're one of the nicest guys I know how do you deal with that <laughs> uh I'm a nice guy you know um and uh, a public servant so I try to remember that whenever yeah. people try to yell and scream at me you know um and my mom, you know, I always point to my mom because, you know, my mom, she, she really helps out. You know, I talk yeah. stuff through with her and she just always reminds me, you know, of why I'm there. And so, and always reminds me, Hey, I ran for this too. You know, at the end of the day, you know, well, <laughs> if you don't like it, just, you know, do something else. <laughs> you signed up, you paid the fee, right. you ran. You're yeah. In. Right. Well, Representative Cecil Brockman, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics, your service in the North Carolina House. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I am sorry you missed the interview, Sky. What happened was it was that Wednesday session. Last week. Last week. And session didn't get out to what, 830 at night. And Representative Brockman said, hey, I can still come over, but I need to run and get some food. I'm starving and I'll come over afterwards. So it was like 930 at night. Mm-hmm. I texted you. I was like, I just got in bed. Do you yeah. want me to change? Yeah. Well, what necessary and handled the interview. I do feel a little different having these conversations without you, though. I feel like my flow is a little off. Even editing the podcast, I was like, oh, I feel a little off. I needed you there. But uh, anyway, Representative Brockman, like I said in the interview, known him for years, and it's been fun to see him grow, not only politically, but to grow from that legislative assistant position to the legislator. And the way he's positioned himself as a swing voter, willing to make deals with Republicans, also holding to his values. Completely admire it. Representative Brockman, thank you for being on the podcast this week. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Brian Murphy. He's at Murph's Turf, T-U-R-P-H, on 
Twitter, and he is a sports reporter for WRAL. The tweet says, ad campaign from NC-based pickle company ahead of North Carolina, South Carolina season opener in Charlotte on September 2nd. So it's a Mount Olive pickle commercial where two linebackers, one from UNC and one from USC, both are drinking the pickle juice, saying they can agree. They can't agree on the best Carolina, but they can agree that this is the secret to a great workout. And I know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I just happen to know somebody who's also <laughs> an athlete <laughs> and drinks Mount Olive pickle juice, mm-hmm. particularly these same little shots that they have. Who is that? <laughs> That's Brian M. Lewis. <laughs> I do little Louie to his fan club. I do love pickle juice and I love Mount Olive pickles. Let me just say something about this pickle juice though. It's not as good as the pickle juice that is just left in your refrigerator after you're done with your pickles and you have that juice. That juice is better than this juice. Oh. There's something You're kind of a hater. I'm not hating, I'm just saying it's better. My mother would call it pickle liquor, the way she called, you know, if she would make collard greens, she'd call that pot liquor. I've never heard that. It's the juice that's left behind and, you know, you can drink it or put it on your cornbread, at least with the collard greens, you'd do that. You didn't do that? I had never had collard greens until moving down here. So sorry about that. I can't relate to this. That's so sorry about that. Anyway, do you agree that the pickle juice is a secret to a good workout? (laughs) I do believe, because I... Well, uh, you are in the camp that if you only drank pickle juice, <laughs> you could lose some weight. Yes, I did go through and that And I'm diet. sure that that would be true had someone actually only drank pickle juice. I did go on a pickle juice diet for about a half a day. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I do have these shots in my cupboard. I prefer to just drink right out of the Mount Olive pickle jar with the pickles. And I, and I do that because I need salt when I'm, I lose salt a lot when I sweat a lot, as you know, I sweat a lot. Yeah. And so I can bonk if I lose, you know, salt. So I I just want to say, I do like the little shots, although I don't understand why a jar of pickles costs a dollar 50 at the grocery store but these little shots that are about four and a half ounces cost six bucks for a six pack. Packaging, man. Packaging, yeah. I do like to drink it. It's good. Do you like pickle juice? Uh-uh. Do you eat Mount Olive pickles? I don't eat pickles. You don't eat pickles? No. That's something we should probably edit out of the podcast. <laughs> sorry, Majority Leader John Bell, who's from Mount Olive, I'm North sorry Carolina. Sorry that you said it, the pickle juice there wasn't as good. It is good. Those little shots yeah, just yeah, aren't yeah, as good as the. How do you like to hydrate? You just drink water. No, you drink those propels. Yeah, I have to have electrolytes every day. Well, see, that's what pickle juice is. It's electrolytes. Mount Olive pickles, man. Speaking of UNC. We've been hearing all this talk about the ACC potentially getting some new folks. I am so confused by this kind of restructuring of the various leagues. Like, I heard it's ruining college football. I don't really know, but I do know that there's talk about, you know, UNC like splitting and then folks are saying legislators are not going to allow that to happen without NC State going along with it. 
Tim I, Boyum's yeah. podcast talked about that this week. And I don't know, we're adding more people to the Big Ten, which I'm opposed to. Because it's no longer 10. We've talked about this before. That Nothing says inaccuracy like having a Big Ten conference with how many? 14 teams? Well, it's pretty inaccurate to call it the Atlantic Coast Conference when you have people from California. So we're, we're looking at adding teams from California into the ACC? Yep. I'm not a big college football fan. You know this. You know what college football is? Tryouts from the NFL. <laughs> I love college football. So you can shove it. Are, are we doing a real tournament this year in college football? We still... oh, I don't want to get it at this no, no, no. I just want to know, are we doing the four teams again? I don't know what we're doing. College football is insane. It makes no sense. Play a tournament the way they do in basketball, the way they do in Division Two football. College basketball does it Why right. Why can't you just the... let people enjoy it? People like college football. Let them enjoy it. Why do you have to be such a Debbie downer i'm not being a downer i'm saying unless we do the american thing which is to have winners and losers you need one winner at the end of a tournament to declare a champion nothing is more silly than watching the term would be sillier (laughs) thank you (laughs) to watch someone play in the duke's mayonnaise bowl and they win that game against another team that is eight and eight, and then to see that team dump mayonnaise on their coach and then have the gall to hold up their finger as if we are number one. No, you're number <laughs> thirty seven. Personally, going to the Duke's mayonnaise bowl in particular <laughs> I I'm sorry, I don't want that off of TV where people are chugging mayo. <laughs> You want to talk America? That's American. (laughs) I like one winner at the end of a season. I want everyone else crying, starving for next year. That's the other thing. You'll read these college football previews, and the goal of the team is to make a bowl. Just to make a bowl. Now, that's a goal of a mediocre team. Well, it's structured. Duke will never play for a national championship. Can't do it. It's not structured that way. How would you split it up if you were going to configure different leagues? I believe that you need a benevolent dictator over college football who is looking for parity across the country so that we have at least 10 different conferences that have strengths, they have weaknesses, and that at the end they produce a champion out of these conferences, and then that is who plays for a national title. Dear everyone, vote Brian Lewis for college football dictator, as he calls it. I would love to do that. (laughs) I am ready for you, college football. I can help you build something special that people understand, that they have buy-in Yeah, I don't think it's going to play well when they play the clip that you say, it's just tryouts for the NFL. It is right now. That is what I like it, college football. I like it too. I like watching Illinois lose. Would you consider Illinois a football school or a basketball school? Basketball school. school. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but we're getting better at football. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, again, about the conferences, is the Big Ten... Dick Buckus didn't go to your school. Well, 
I went to UNC Greensboro. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but we have never lost a game in football and never been scored on. Because you've never played. Yeah, I got yeah. it. We do have a club football team, though. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wear shoulder pads all nine yards. I don't really know who they play. This is something that's been added on since I've left UNCG. Weird that you decided to include they wear shoulder pads. <laughs> Are you believing what detractors are saying that we're basically just going to have a few schools that are going to compete in football and then the rest of college sports is just going to be a wasteland? Yeah. You think this gets into politics soon? Like, yes. Do you think lawmakers are going to step in? Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. If you're taking UNC, you got to take its cousin, NC State. <laughs> yeah. Over the last 14 years, it is nice to see at the General Assembly, they stick up for NC State and the other schools. Mm -hmm. You know, UNC Charlotte, Appalachian State has a great following in the General Assembly of legislators. When I first came into the General Assembly 23 years ago. Yeah, we've heard. mm Mm-hmm. UNC it was all Carolina could do no wrong Senator besides Martin, not making their kids go to class <laughs> and you know like the oh. sexual assault mm. Senator Mark Baznight Senator Tony Rand they would get up and almost come to tears talking about UNC when they would give floor speeches and it was just like give me a break come on oh, you sound like you have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder I do I went to UNCG we we're where you go if you don't get into UNC is kind of that's out there. There is yeah. there is a large safety uh, school. It is a safety school for those who didn't get into UNC. Yeah, it's nice to see legislators sticking up for their schools because you did not see that 20 years ago. Well, I wish you luck with, you know, Illinois this year. I hope you uh, have great success on the gridiron. I, one day we we'll, might play UNCG and we'll be able to talk <laughs> about it on the podcast. I am going to an Illinois football game in October. Who are they playing? Maryland, at Maryland. Okay. Clo- it's the closest. They're coming. But when I was in law school, I, they played Carolina. Win or lose? They lost. And the people were really mean, at, might I add. At UNC? Yes. Which is your law school alma mater. Yeah. And I was in law school at the time. And people were like, just, you know, saying the meanest stuff about Illinois. I'm like, dude, I pay tuition here. Can you not? Mm-hmm. Get a life and get your tattoo removed. <laughs> We're sorry that this week did not have a lot of news, but we will be back next week with more MC Poll news, a new interview, and we're willing to add in some segments. If there is there are technical things that y'all would like to hear about, let us know. We'll talk about them. Until then, enjoy this break from the heat and humidity. Go outside. Have a great first day of school to all kids starting school next week. And remember to do politics better.